Welcome back to eConversations with Nabe, the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics and your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. Today's episode is the webinar replay of the February 2023 NAVE Outlook Survey Results webinar held on February 27, 2023. NAVE Outlook Survey Chair Dana Peterson discusses the Q1 forecast results with Outlook Survey analysts Yelena Maliyev, Brent Meyer, and David Bowers, and takes questions from webinar attendees. Passing it over to you, Dana. Caitlin, thanks so much. Greetings, everyone. Um, We are here to discuss the February 2023 NABE Outlook Survey. I'm going to be sharing my screen uh, to discuss uh, some of the highlights that we have from the survey. Um, Hopefully everyone can see this large screen, yes? Okay, Okay, excellent. So just really briefly about the survey, 48 professional forecasters weighed in on the outlook for 2023 and 2024. The survey was conducted February 3rd through the 10th of 2023. And the survey uh, was first uh, begun back in 1965. You can see our survey committee here, um, including our NAE president, Julia Coronado. Um, I'm Dana Peterson, and I'm joined today by Brent Meyer, Yelena Maliev, and Dave Bowers. And we're going to be discussing the key pieces of information from this survey. So what are some of the survey highlights? Divergence and dispersion were definitely the key words that we saw. And certainly respondents had very different views on the U.S. outlook, um, whether they believe there's going to be a recession or not, or very healthy growth. Um, certainly when uh, inflation will converge upon the 2% target, and certainly around what monetary policy will do, especially with respect to how much the Fed is going to continue raising interest rates, what are going to be the the signposts that they will end their tightening cycle, and also what will be the signposts for when they will begin cutting interest rates. And respondents had very different views across all of these different areas. In general, expectations for a recession in the the United States um, have been pushed back until later this year. And indeed, when asked what were the key upside and downside risks, um, the biggest downside risk was too much monetary policy. That is the same as it was in the prior survey in December. However, it did lose a little bit of importance um, to concerns about the war in Ukraine. And in terms of the biggest upside risk being a soft landing for the U.S., the Fed achieving a soft landing for the U.S. economy, that was the main upside risk, and there was um, even more uh, weight put on that. Um, In terms of the Fed, Many respondents expect that the Fed will continue raising interest rates, but that inflation will largely determine when it pauses the rate tightening cycle and when it will begin uh, lowering interest rates. Most panelists expect the debt ceiling to be resolved without a crisis. Um, In terms of inflation, um, currency dynamics are anticipated that the currency is going to to, um, depreciate which can have some inflationary pressures. I'll let um, David talk more about that. Um, and, or, uh, or maybe it's Brett. <laughs> it's Brett, yes. And also China's reopening, um, a good number felt that it will be inflationary, but also you know, how would the Fed respond to that? And then finally, uh, discussion of housing. Um, it's still the case that 
many respondents believe that the housing market will continue to weaken, but they don't expect a, a quote unquote housing bust. Um, so just a few highlights in terms of GDP growth. The median for 2023, and it's highlighted here in light blue, is for pretty tepid growth, pretty close to zero. But the dispersion among the lowest five versus the highest five is quite wide. Like the lowest five had minus 1.3% growth, and this is for Q1, 4Q uh, in 2023. And the highest five had 1.9. So that is really wide. And certainly we see um, a pretty wide dispersion also for next year, Q4 and Q4, where the median's at 1.9 but you still have some folks who believe that there's going to be very weak growth um, next year, the lowest five at just a tenth of a percentage point, Q4 and Q4. Meanwhile, the highest five have 2.6% Q4 and Q4. In terms of recession expectations, um, you still have a good number or a good percentage of the panelists who anticipate that there will be a recession at some point over the next 12 months. Um, 48 or roughly 49% believing that there's a 51 to 75% likelihood, and then a 9% believing there's a 76 to 100% likelihood. But there were a few more who have shifted downward into below 50% likelihood. And in terms of when the recession will start, um, in our first, uh, when we, I think when we first asked this, or at least in December survey, we had most people thinking, the first quarter of 2023, that has shifted downward and outward in terms of when expectations are for the next, for a possible recession in the US. And again, in terms of the greatest downside and upside risk, too much monetary tightening, tightness, excuse me, was still overwhelmingly the main upside risk that people saw, but um, broadening of the war in Ukraine did gain some um, traction there. And in terms of a housing market bus, it's still pretty small. And then certainly when it comes to upside risk, uh, the Fed achieving its desired soft landing, this percentage actually increased from December. So I'm going to hand it over um, to Brent to discuss prices. Thanks and hello, everyone. Um, just as Dana was mentioning about the dispersion across the real GDP growth for in, in the growth outlook, uh, we're seeing pretty much the same thing when it comes to uh, in, inflation forecasts. Um, the baseline sort of median uh, projection is something for uh, further disinflation, uh, both in 2023 and 2024, hanging out maybe just slightly above uh, the FOMC sort of price stability mandate. Um, but you can see, especially in 2023, the dispersion uh, for the overall consumer price index, the highest five forecasts were at 4.1%, the lowest five forecasts were at 1.9%. Uh, that dispersion is, is echoed in the core PCE inflation uh, estimates. Uh, two other things I'll note here that, are, that I found interesting is one, uh, 86%, even though we're seeing this disinflationary trend, uh, uh, even despite the dispersion we're seeing, 86% uh, of respondents uh, uh, anticipated that uh, or, or, or forecasting core PCE inflation will, that will remain above 2% um, beyond uh, 2024 and late, or, or later. So, so tw to 2024 or later, uh, it, it takes some time. And then the other thing, and again, Dana mentioned this, uh, the dynamics in the background here that might be influencing these forecasts are 
uh, some depreciation in the dollar. It's not significant. I think the many participants uh, uh, anticipated that uh, uh, the the softening of the dollar, depreciation of the dollar, will be in the one to five percent range. And then um, many respondents, again, not a not a majority, but many respondents. Uh, believe that China's uh, reopening will be inflationary. There was uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, uncertainty around that. I think, uh, I think uh, um, you know, quite a few respondents said that they weren't really unsure whether or not China's reopening would be on net inflationary or deflationary, but uh, uh, I think it was 45% uh, of respondents uh, anticipated it'll be uh, inflationary. So I think, do we wanna turn to labor then next? Yeah, so um, on labor, again, the, the, the theme of dispersion or disagreement uh, uh, continues to echo here. Uh, the <clears throat> median forecast for the civilian unemployment rate, this U3 unemployment rate was 3.9% for 2023, uh, increasing moder moderately to 4.3% uh, uh, in 2024. Again, you see uh, the, the disagreement among the highest and lowest five forecasts. Uh, for 2023, you know, it's uh, uh, the highest five had 4.9%, the lowest had 3.3%. Uh, um, personally, in, in, uh, against a backdrop of uh, some uh, uh, significant, some calls for uh, a recession, uh, as, as uh, Dana highlighted, uh, an increase of the, uh, even, even the most pessimistic folks, uh, this isn't a, this isn't a, a very strong a recessionary dynamic that that, that uh, forecasters are building in, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I think I'll stop there then, and we can we can move on. Thanks. Great, great, Donna. Shall I just continue on the um, on the interest rate outlook? Um, look, yes. looking at the looking at the uh, consensus for um, for Fed funds and for the um, the the ten year Treasury. Um, the projections for Fed funds for the end of 2023 have risen modestly. We're now talking about uh, a, a median of 4.875%. Um, that's up from the 4.625% in the previous um, forecast uh, review. Uh, so not a great deal of change there. And people are still looking, you know, very much looking for the Fed to ease policy in 2024, looking for median Fed funds to be down to around three and a half percent by the end of 2024. But again, this theme of dispersion really, uh, really leaps out of even the interest rate forecasts. Uh, even for this year, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a fair range uh, with the uh, most pessimistic thinking that Fed funds could be as high as uh, 5.375 by the end of this, uh, this year. But looking at 2024 in the fourth quarter, you have a very, very wide range with the most pessimistic still having a five handle on Fed funds and the more optimistic uh, those who think inflation is going to come down faster, um, I think the Fed could be, um, Fed funds could be as low as 2.625%. Um, so the, you know, the issues around interest rates are, um, you know, are, are, are just as complex uh, as they are for the other, for the real economy variables. In terms of bond yields, 3.55% um, uh, is the median for the end of 2023. Um, that's a decrease 
from our previous review, the NAID previous review back um, in December when the number was 3.8%. Um, but again, look at look at that range for 2023 um, with the, the highest estimates around five on 10-year treasuries and the lowest estimates with a three handle. Um, and again, looking into 2024, um, you know, the, the consensus expects some easing in 10 years treasuries, but again, you've got uh, more than 200 basis points spread between the most pessimistic and the most optimistic. Inside this view is a, um, is a less negative yield curve slope, um, but no great rush towards a positive one um, for 2020. Four. It's worth perhaps on the next page, Dana, looking at some of the um, some of the special questions about uh, what might motivate uh, the Fed to pause and what might motivate the Fed to cut. And on the left hand side, table 4A, um, this question was really trying to understand what people thought would, would, would inspire the Fed to pause in its tightening cycle. And it's really about all about inflation variations on a theme, um, be it a general confidence that inflation is uh, on track to slow back in 2024, some actual slowing in what people now call super core inflation. Um, uh, broadly speaking, that seems to be the dominant uh, catalyst that people are looking for, for the Fed to pause. Um, labor market recession, they're up there as factors, uh, but it's very much you know, this obsession with inflation, which they, which people believe, the consensus believe, is going to be the catalyst for a Fed pause. In terms of what may cause the Fed to cut, um, inflation still features quite significantly. Um, but I think the difference between 4A and 4C is there's a greater emphasis on risks around the real economy. So if you get a very sharp rise in the unemployment rate or a very severe recession, that could also be a factor that forces the Fed hands, forces the Fed pivot, and forces the Fed to be more aggressive in its easing policy um, than, um, than, than, than would, otherwise, um, would, would otherwise be the case. And finally, in terms of when the Fed might start to um, ease policy, um, a third of our panel think it's going to be the fourth quarter of 2023, and a third of our panel think it's going to be the first quarter of um, 2024. And if there's a skew, it's that it's going to be later, rather, um, rather, rather, rather than sooner. Um, and just to sort of round up the 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 the, the interest rate section, what does this mean for currency? Dan has already highlighted that for choice. Um, there is a sort of a, a bearish tack around the dollar. But in one of the special questions we've included in the survey, um, if you ask people where they think the dollar is going to be uh, a year from now, 63% uh, of the panel think it's going to be lower, 20% think it's going to be higher. Um, and the, the dominant view um, is that it's going to be just mildly lower between 1% to 5%. And that covers the interest rate outlook, Donna. Great. And I'll move into the housing section. So before I dive into the numbers on this table, I just wanted to give a, a more uh, holistic view, a 30,000 feet view, as Dana already mentioned, 
only 2% of our respondents in this survey expect a housing bust to be the greatest downside risk to the US economy, fairly consistent with the December responses of about 4%. So much less risk uh, coming out of housing when it comes to impacting the overall economy. Now, when it came to asking about residential fixed investment, which is a component of GDP, that median forecast for 2023 has been downgraded further from the December survey. Now, uh, panelists are expecting a 14.2% decline in 2023. That's down from the 11.7 in the December survey. And for context, in 2022, that figure actually fell 10.7%. So now we have a fall uh, in residential fixed investment in 2022, 2023, and the expectation for 2024 is for it to rise, but by a very muted 1.9%. And so looking at this table here, I'll start with housing starts. Uh, the expectation is for housing starts to fall to 1.31 million units this in 2023. That's down from 1.55 in 2022, which is a decline of about 16% which will make it the largest annual drop since the aftermath of the housing bust in 2009. Um, but this is also quite um, not as stark of a downgrade from the December responses, which was about 1.32%. So it's holding fairly still. But as the theme that we've been pulling throughout this uh, session has shown, a lot of dispersion around the responses. The five lowest are actually expecting 1.1 million units, five highest 1.45. Now, when we look into 2024, the median uh, forecast for, for housing starts is 1.35 million units. So this is about a tempered 3% rise, which would actually make it the slowest annual growth in housing starts since 2017. And just to give some context to the housing bust, uh, what we saw in 2009, for example, starts actually fell 38%. So these are not uh, big drops as, as we're expecting here. Um, and the rebound did take a few years after 2009. And so only in about 2012, 2013, did we start to see double digit percent growth in housing starts. So we don't have a further forecast than 2024. But for now, it's about a 3% rise in 2024. Now, moving on to home prices, uh, this is the uh, Federal Housing Finance Agency's House Price Index, the FHFA, percent change. Uh, this ex expectation is for home prices in this index to fall 3.8% in 2023. So this would mark the first annual drop in home prices since 2011. And again, the dispersion is there, but it's not quite as wide as it was in the December survey. You can see here the five lowest expect a 9% drop. In December, that number was a 15% drop, so they kind of brought it up a bit. And the five highest expect a 2.5% increase in the December survey, people expected a 5% increase, the five highest. And so still some dispersion there, but tightening a little bit as well. We are still waiting for December data for this FHFA figure. Uh, the consensus, this number comes out tomorrow. So the consensus is for December to uh, see a drop of 0.2% month on month, bringing the year end number to about a 6.5% increase uh, in 2022. And so if this is the case uh, for 2022, a 3.8% drop in 2023 would bring home prices to a level last seen earlier in 2022. So not pre-pandemic prices, we are not correcting the boom. Um, this is just a small uh, downdraft. And then the expectation for 2024 is for home prices to actually rise by 2%. Uh, again, there's some dispersion there with some folks ex do expecting them to continue falling. But if they do rise in 2024, that means that the housing uh, price expectations are only going to fall 
for uh, one year, year on year. And in the housing bust, the aftermath, we actually saw five years of home price uh, declines. And so this is kind of bucking that trend much more quickly. Now, I do want to bring up one last thing that we did not ask in the survey explicitly, but I like to follow uh, closely is the 10-year treasury rate, which uh, helps us understand what the 30-year fixed mortgage rate is going to do. Uh, currently, the 30-year mortgage rate is about 275 basis points of above the 10-year treasury. And so with expectation from the panelists that the 10-year is going to fall this year, next year, if that premium, that difference remains about the same, that drop in mortgage rates will help fuel more of that housing demand because higher mortgage rates really do uh, put, do a toll on the housing market, especially for housing demand when prices remain this elevated. So I'll end with that and I look forward to our chat. Thanks so much, Elena, Brent, and David. At this time, we'll open this up for Q&A. I already see some questions in uh, the queue. So um, in housing, why are existing home sales decreasing and new home sales increasing? Elena, would you like to tackle that one? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I actually focused on this in my recent write-up. Um, you can find it on the KPMG Economics website. So essentially, new home sales are priced by builders. Whereas the existing home market, it's resale market that's priced by homeowners. Builders are much more responsive to changes in the economy and market conditions than homeowners are. And so builders are much more quick to provide price cuts, mortgage rate buy-downs, do whatever they need to do in their local markets to help move supply. And the new home market is actually much more oversupplied than the existing home market. Uh, the number of uh, the current sales pace, it would take about seven months to clear the new home market versus the existing home market is only about two months supply. And so homeowners, they're kind of facing this kind of staring contest with potential home buyers, like who will blink first in this market, whereas builders are just trying to clear out the inventory. They know they have a lot of supply in their hands. They're much more responsive to, uh, to the prices and to the market. Thank you. The next question, um, either Brent or David can tackle this or both can or Yelena, it's, it's open. Um, is the labor market and the low unemployment rate challenging the Fed as well as inflation? Shall, shall I kick off with that one, Dana? Sure, and then Brent can hop on. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if one read, reads Powell's speeches, he makes it very explicit that there is a, 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 a there is a, that the labor market is in his view, very tight, that there is a significant um, gap between labor supply and labor demand. And that, you know, in a way, seeing some normalization of the labor market uh, is probably a prerequisite to making sure inflation is well anchored. Um, so I, I think that the, I think the Fed will be very uncomfortable with that latest, um, uh, the, the most, most recent non-farm payroll report, um, because I think that's, that's, that I think does contain some, you know, some, some medium term risks around inflation. Um, and it also suggests that the output gap is closed or, or even positive. So I, I think, I think, uh, I think Powell has made it very clear. The Fed has made it very clear that the you know, labour market tightness is a is an important issue. So in that sense, I think our special question is quite interesting because the the consensus among you know business economists is to focus on inflation as being the primary driver of the Fed pausing or the Fed cutting, 
Um, but I suspect that the Fed would, would see a more balanced argument that in the medium term, you do need to see some adjustment um, in the labor market, preferably people coming back into the labor market. Um, but that, that, that'll take time. But I think it's a, it's a very good point to make. Uh, we're all obsessed about the inflation numbers, but actually, um, you know, record low unemployment and, you know, significant labor market tightness is something I think the Fed has made very clear that it's worried about. Brent? Yeah, so so I got to be a little bit careful careful here and just say that these are my views. They're not the Federal Reserve Banks of, the, of Atlanta or the Federal Reserve System view. Um, I, 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 I agree a lot with what David said. I guess in the, in the backdrop here, I think this is stated publicly that the Fed's trying to realign aggregate supply and aggregate demand. And the reading that we got, you know, the, it, on March, or I'm sorry, on February 3rd, when the when the, um, so our survey opened up, our survey started fielding the, the employment report, the latest jobs number, just suggests that there's a bit more strength in there, and it's going to take a bit more time to sort of re-close those gaps uh, uh, and realign aggregate demand and aggregate supply. And I think that then you you start uh, thinking about what aspects of a very tight labor market feed through most readily into prices. And I think that, again, going back to the special question results that David covered, uh, this notion of the that super core uh, component, uh, the component that tends to have a uh, fairly high uh, um, correlation or, or it has uh, components that rely heavily on wages, uh, especially in food service and, and things like that. So, so um, yeah. It, I, again, it's 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 just going to take. I think, in my view, it's going to take some time before before all those those gaps are closed and things are realigned. Thank you, Elena. Did you want to weigh in on on this one? No, I would agree with uh, Brent and David on that. Okay. So, um, so there's a question about the third row of all the tables. I apologize. That's my fault. The third row is personal consumption expenditures, less food and energy. So that third row that was obscured in all the tables, that's the core PCE. Um, we'll fix that and uh, send it back to Nabe. But that was my fault because <laughs> I created that. Okay, so another question. What unemployment rate will cause the Fed to pause? Commentary is at 4.5%. So this, we didn't ask this question in the survey. So I think maybe everyone could just kind of go around and give their own view on what they think, uh, what unemployment rate would cause the Fed to, to pause. I'll start with you, Elena. Yeah, thank you. So um, this is my personal view, but I think this, this is tricky because the Fed doesn't have an unemployment target the way they have an inflation target, right? And as we've talked about uh, the current labor market dynamics, it's a very tight labor market. And so even the most pessimistic folks that assumed uh, a recession would occur and unemployment would go up, that highest bound was about five something uh, percent on the unemployment rate, whereas previous recessions we've seen you know, upwards of double digits unemployment. And so it's not necessarily that a 4.5 or whatever number unemployment rate would signal that the Fed has gone too far, the monetary policy is too tight, that the economy is in a recession. It has a lot more to do with just the current labor market dynamics. So I think that's why they're just focusing more on that inflation number and knowing that you know tight labor market conditions will help keep kind of that 
ceiling on the unemployment rate from rising too much. Um, we're we're currently recutting our own forecast to see what unemployment would peak at. But last month's forecast, we had a peaking at 4.8%. And so kind of in line with the projections of the panel, um, this is not a recessionary uh, unemployment rate, right? This is a reflection of a very tight labor market. Would anyone else like to weigh in? I have a lot of sympathy with what Elena has said about there not being a you know a, a Fed target for the unemployment rate. Um, I think all I would I notice that um, you know you know whenever you see the unemployment rate go up more than fifty basis points in a twelve month period, that's um, has historically been associated with onsets of recession. So you know we may not need that big an absolute number to signal quite a significant change in the 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 in the, in the, in the macro narrative i i think the you know that the fed has made inflation its priority um obviously everybody hopes that unemployment won't have to go up um significantly i think the question really is going to be um how much pressure you have to put the corporate sector under um and looking at the um the nave consensus forecasts um for corporate profits after tax um you know there's, there's actually a moment we've got quite a quite a the consensus is looking for quite a sort of modest a very modest uh contraction in, in earnings I, I think i think that unemployment number could get up you know, could go up very sharply if the corporates really found themselves under 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 significant uh pressure let's say from a you know a world trade slowdown or or, or the like but i i think my my view is that I don't think that I don't think there is a, a a number that the Fed is 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 focused on. Um, it is that I think the the inflation is still the the number one priority. And I would just add to what David uh, commented on is that the unemployment could actually keep rising even after the Fed has paused or even yeah, started to cut. Yeah, it's such absolutely. a like variable that it's also really hard to pin down what the number will be that would almost if it's like a question about scaring them into pausing. It's, it's a lagged variable. They're looking at other things. They're looking at unemployment claims. They're looking at um, other more leading indicators. So the unemployment rate will come after. Um, potentially, they've changed their policy stance. Brent? Uh, I don't think I have too much to add here. Uh, the only thing I would say is you, know, you can get a notion of uh, where the committee was thinking about uh, uh, um, peaking out when it comes to the Fed funds rate from the summary economic projections in December. And that give you a notion of sort of what the unemployment prevailing unemployment rate conditions would be. I don't think it was near 4.5%, but um, I'd have to double check. But that's sure. all I want. My quick view is I don't think uh, there is uh, an unemployment rate that the Fed is looking at to determine when it's going to pause. I, I agree very much with David that inflation is going to be the key factor and the labor market with respect to wage pressures feeding into inflation will be important for the Fed. And indeed, you know, they repeatedly say, well, there could be some pain. Well, that pain may be an unemployment rate that's higher, but if inflation is still out of control, then I would imagine the Fed would not be, be moved by that. Okay, so um, next question. Why are you focusing so much on the dispersion of the data? Is high dispersion abnormal for the survey? What does high dispersion tell us? Uh, so I think for the past two surveys, the December and February surveys, it was quite notable or noticeable, I would say, that 
you had these very wide ranges for expectations for some of the, the measures. And I personally think that that's a sign of uncertainty. Like many of us don't really know what's going on. We're giving it our best guess. We all have our data to back it up, but there's not a consensus here, right? And indeed you have some forecasters um, who are saying to themselves, well, everyone swung too far in one direction. I'm gonna head over into the other direction. So you could have some of that there as well. Um, but I mean, I think that's, that's personally why I think it's important for us to focus on this because of these wide bands. Would anyone else like to disagree or agree? No, I, so Dana, I'll just jump in real quick. I completely agree that while uncertainty or disagree, or um, excuse me, while dispersion or disagreement is not a perfect proxy for uncertainty, I, they tend to go hand in hand. It tends to be just a, a noisy signal of uncertainty. Uh, and in this environment where you have, uh, you know, individuals, a collection of folks that are anticipating a, a recession, uh, a collection of folks that really see no landing whatsoever here over 2023, maybe even through 2024, it just sets up, uh, it's very useful to have that in the back of your heads when you're actually uh, uh, um, reading and evaluating and using uh, the survey results. Thanks, Brent. Another question is any, re I'm sorry, David, did you want to comment? Just one last thing. I think one of the challenges, I think there are two challenges for anybody forecasting at the moment. That The first is the volatility of the data. And it does feel as though the data is more volatile. I know the BLS have been flagging some issues with, um, you know, low response rates for some of the survey surveys that they, that, they, that they run. So I think that's one challenge. But I think the biggest challenge, as my personal view, is that, um, uh, most people have never seen a monetary policy tightening of this magnitude. Um, you have to go back to the, to, to the late 70s, early 80s, to see something uh, of this scale um, in terms of developed market policy rates, in terms of QT. I mean, this is this is this is really quite quite a, quite a shock. And I think that I think that will, you know there are quite a few people who've never never experienced this, never seen this before. And I think it's just more challenging to see how that's going to work through the financial system this time around. Um, you know, the, the leads and the lags around monetary policy, we know, are, um, are, are, can, can, can be variable. And so I think I, I suspect that possibly one of the reasons for the dispersion is that people are using very different monetary frameworks. Some people, monetary policy dominates everything, and they're very worried about what this kind of monetary policy um, move will do. Other people will say, hey, everybody's termed out their debt, they're borrowing long term, there isn't going to be the same sensitivity this time around that there was in the past. So I think people have got very different mental maps about how monetary policy is going to impact things. And so uh, I, I think um, I, I think the, you know, the uncertainty about the data, these geopolitical shocks like COVID and the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but I think above all, it's the monetary shock and the the transmission mechanisms, how's that going to work through this time around, which, you know, is, is creating a lot of headaches for forecasters. You know, housing market is a good example. Of, you know, is this mortgage rate a problem or isn't it? Um, so I think these are the kinds of things that that are making a forecaster's job even more difficult than normal. I would also add, I think there's this element of, will it happen or won't? Will there be a recession <laughs> or not, right? And so there, um, you know, many of us would look at, the Fed raising interest rates by five percentage points 
you know, 500 basis points or more over the span of a year as definitely causing a recession. What's different this time around are labor shortages, right? So labor shortages are keeping the labor market tight in addition to, and the labor shortages are a function of a few things, including baby boomers retiring, um, folks who, you know, having childcare and elder care issues, and certainly, you know, pretty tight immigration policies. So with all that, that is creating a lot of pressure on the labor market. Um, so you have folks who say, well, you can't possibly have a recession with a labor market that tight, never mind the cause, but just, you know, the outcome is that maybe we don't have a big surge in the unemployment rate. So I think that's underlying, you know, the, the big dispersion in the forecast. Will we have a recession or, or will there be yeah. a soft landing? And my definition of soft landing is uh, the Fed is able to tame inflation without inducing a recession. So I, I, I think that's also kind of underneath. Okay, great. Um, we have one more question. So if, if you still have questions, please feel free to type them into the chat. This next question is, if wage growth slows toward 2%, but the unemployment rate stays low, would that be enough to assuage the Fed fears and slow their pace of rate increases? Or do they need to see the unemployment rate rise? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I think wage growth at 2% would be historically pretty low though too. Uh, you know, typically it's something, you know, around 3% plus. Um, it depends on how tightly, uh, uh, what we're seeing in, in retail prices, the price pressure, inflationary pressure we're seeing feed through on retail is connected to wages. Uh, and the, and the, the economic literature here is not all that clear. In fact, there's strong evidence on either side of that and whether or not wages are a lagging indicator or a leading indicator. Uh, um, my view is that at best they're concurrent. Um, so, so if we started to see wage growth that was really slow, uh, then and 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 in line with that, you saw uh, broad underlying inflation pressure start to dissipate. Those would be fantastic things, in my view. Um, but, but yeah, that's a it's a complicated question because again, uh, uh, you know, if wage growth is running at two percent, that also suggests that maybe. Uh, one component of that wage growth that's outside of the nominal component is the real component, and that's a productivity component. Uh, and that would suggest pretty soft productivity uh, growth. Um, that, that's not, you know, on balance, uh, a positive thing for inflationary dynamics either. So I, I think that's a cha challenging question with a lot of on one hand and, and on the other. Yeah, I would add to that that well, when we ask about wage growth, is that average hourly earnings, average weekly earnings, the employment cost index, uh, wages and salaries, just a, as Brent mentioned, there might be some components inside of that that trigger like a um, kind of depress down the overall number or, or make it seem elevated for a certain portion of time. We saw wage growth um, actually really accelerate when uh, a lot of the lower wage workers got laid off in early COVID times, right? So that was like an artificial boosting of what wage growth uh, was doing. Uh, and furthermore, when we talk about, you know, the, the Fed's current flavor of the month, the super core inflation, uh, services x housing, that's kind of talking about how they assume that 
that inflation figure best represents wages in the economy reflected in prices, right? And so when we think about, you know, is that going to be the first tree to drop? Is the super core inflation going to come down? It's, it's it's still been quite elevated, or is that going to show up in some of these other wage measures, which, um, as Brent said, could be concurrent or could, could potentially be lagging? So I think it's just a matter of looking across the dashboard of different indicators to get a sense of what's really happening uh, in, in the labor market and for wage growth. But that we haven't, as Powell even said in recent comments, we haven't seen that wage price spiral. And once we see it, it's too late. Uh, and so, you know, we, we have to keep paying attention to wage growth, but that doesn't necessarily quite mean yet that that's what the inflation figure is really um, absorbing quite yet. Thank you. The next question is what, is, what is the significance of highly paid tech workers getting laid off as lower paid service workers are in short supply? So I'd like to start on this one because I think the narrative is somewhat wrong. People are saying white collar versus blue collar or high wage versus low wage. I think it's really about um, pandemic darlings, right? Um, correcting at this point. So that includes tech, finance, retail, real estate, um, to a certain degree, uh, warehousing and transportation. Uh, those were in very high demand during the pandemic. Meanwhile, services, especially services that require you to physically show up to work, were in low demand. Now that's being switched, right? So um, people are headed back to work. They don't need 10 cars or 15 computers. Um, and also uh, interest rates have risen <laughs> quite dramatically. So that's affecting real estate and certainly the financial sector and also heavily leveraged, highly leveraged uh, industries, including tech. So they're seeing the downside, right, of the big upswing that they experienced during the pandemic. Meanwhile, you have many industries, especially those that require you to physically show up to work are in high demand. And those are services like, uh, like uh, hotels and restaurants and airlines. And, you know, there's a mix in terms of, of wages for those industries. So I think that's really uh, how we should look at this as opposed to, you know, some odd thing where, you know, now it's the rich people getting laid off. No, it's, it's really about the dynamics of the pandemic itself and how it impacted the labor market and the consequence, the, the, the subsequent recovery. So those are my thoughts on that. I don't know if anyone else wants to comment. Okay, all right. So um, the next question is, was there any mention in the survey concerning the supply factor and the consumer and retail spending as an indicator? So we didn't ask about, you know, like excess savings and things like that. Is that kind of what it's, the question's referencing? Uh, I'm not sure. Mark, um, is Mark able to, to speak on the call, Caitlin? If not, Mark, why don't you um, uh, refine your question so that we can answer it? All right, thanks. So the next, uh, that was Mark Zashin. The next question is, there was a debate as to whether we are officially in a recession as well as the emergence of the term technical recession. What importance from a policy perspective and from the perspective of business owners does a proclamation of a recession have? Um, so I'll start. Um, there's In the U.S., there's no such thing as a technical recession because we have the NBER, which has a, several paragraphs on how they define recession, and it's not simply you know, two quarters of negative GDP growth. 
So for example, last year we did have two quarters of negative GDP growth, but I'm sure many of us would agree that the US was not in recession, right? If you dug beneath the surface, domestic demand was still very strong and all the whiplash was from trade and inventories. And by the way, the labor market was doing swimmingly very well last year. Um, so I think that, um, you know, that, that we should just understand how recession is defined. It's not that simple in the U.S. Whereas in other countries, yes, two quarters of negative GDP growth may be a technical recession because they don't have a recession uh, timing organization. But I think that, you know, you know economists love to, you know, name things and, and whether it's a recession or not. But I think the perception is going to vary by industry. So if you're in one of those industries that I mentioned earlier that are right-sizing, um, yes, they may feel like, yes, it's a recession. And also for anyone who gets laid off, they're having their own personal recession. Um, meanwhile, you're going to have industries that are going to continue to um, do well, such as um, uh, leisure and hospitality and healthcare, which are still adding workers. So I think that, you know, certainly from, you know, from an economist perspective and that, you know, having this recession designation is important, but for companies and for individuals, it's going to be very individualistic. Yeah, I agree with that, Dana. If I could just add just one component to that, that uh, one thing that we've seen in chatting with businesses uh, throughout the sixth district in Atlanta um, is that when that term recession gets bandied about and it's in the news, it's all over the place, business owners and business uh, C-suite execs, they react to this. And they react to this by uh, engaging in contingency planning and, and girding themselves and preparing themselves for that potential outcome. Uh, so I think to a large extent, that's already sort of happened. So whether or not, you know, we end up in 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 that term that you know in in a in a recession that that is just going to be the case where business owners and 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 business decision makers uh, start executing on those contingency plans they've already put in place. I would even offer because um, we do at the conference board surveys of of executives, CEOs, and CFOs and. We have a CEO confidence measure, and we asked about recession back in the second quarter. And already back then, before anyone was really even thinking about recession, they were talking about it. So <laughs> I would imagine that before the news even caught on, that CEOs were already looking at the tea leaves and saying, look, the Fed's hiking interest rates, inflation is, is elevated, I'm having trouble finding workers, this, uh, you know, so supply chains are still disrupted. I can't imagine a good outcome from this. Um, so I, as Brent said, many of them have already shifted into defensive mode um, because they were already seeing something down the line. Now, whether it happens or not, we're still waiting. Um, and I think a key thing is, you know, those, everything that CEOs were thinking about was based upon what they know, their own understanding of economics and interest rates and pass through to the real economy. Um, but I don't, but labor shortage just kind of breaks or bends a lot of those models, right? And so that's why I think there's so much uncertainty out there. Okay, um, sure, go ahead. 
Yeah, but just I just like to add one one thing. I, I think, in terms of what a recession means from the perspective of business owners, I think, I, I think it has potentially significant implications um, on risk appetite. Uh, people will become more risk averse in terms of investment products projects. They're more likely to shorten their investment time horizon. I think access to credit. Um, will also becomes more of an issue as, as as you know going into recession, banks um, tighten their lending standards uh, quite quite significantly. Um, I think that's one of the things that's really standing out at the moment is the way that senior loan officers are are, are already starting to tighten their, their 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 lending standards. So I think in, from from a business owner's perspective, um, you know people just you know they 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 trim their capex plan, they trim their hiring plans, but I think it's the issues around the, the financing of businesses, which is where I'd probably, um, which I think is, is, is also very uh, a very important aspect. When you say the word recession, it changes how how many banks and loan officers behave. Um, so I think I think it's uh, it has some really practical um, knock on effects. Thank you. So we have several more questions and only about nine minutes. So we're going to do lightning round. So mm -hmm. we're going to just have one answer. <laughs> so a panelist, whoever jumps in there and you get 30 seconds to answer it. Okay. All right. So this is like a game show. Um, this next question is Fed policy generally aligns supply and demand by way of cooling consumption. Would the panelists like to comment on the use of on the use of this policy in the face of sluggish supply recovery and continuing spotty supply chain issues. Okay, yep. no. Go ahead, Brett. That was a lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If no one has an answer, we'll move on. Um, I'll just I'll just add one thing. Sure. Go ahead. Fed policy is a blunt tool. All they can do is demand in a supply constrained world. So this is something that we understand um, as uh, Fed watchers or economists, um, that this is only one side of the equation that the Federal Reserve can influence. Thank you, Elena. Next question, productivity has been low according to statistics from different economic organizations, yet private companies are increasing their productivity. Is this due partly to layoffs? I think there are different definitions of productivity at, at play here. Yes. I don't okay. feel like elaborating. We got, we, we're, okay. we're just, <laughs> right. it's, it's more, more than 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. So um, we have a question. Yes, but how does the change in the mix of employment affect measured wage inflation? I think this was in relation to the tech worker layoffs. Um, the way that the average hourly earnings are uh, recorded is that if you're receiving severance on a regular basis, not as a lump sum, it's still recorded in wages. So tech workers that receive severance on an ongoing basis are not going to depress uh, wage growth um, yet. So it's just about how long they get severance for and whether or not they get scooped up by another company, which is very common because we actually aren't really seeing much uh, in the aggregate data about the tech layoffs affecting the overall um, employment numbers. So here's a question. What is your reaction to a lower savings rate and increase in consumer debt? All right, I'll, I guess I'll go. Uh, <laughs> I, I, still think, I still think for the upper end and the income distribution, there's a ton of excess savings out there. 
at the moment. So, you know, the low savings rate is, is on the flow, uh, but the stocks are still pretty high at the moment, at least for the upper half of the income distribution. Um, you know, going forward, that suggests that in order for consu nominal consumption expenditures to be uh, uh, still robust, uh, you'd need uh, ongoing increases in, in aggregate hours and incomes. And, jo and jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, ag aggregate hours, right? So, yeah. so you can think about that as employment times hours yeah. work. Yeah, so okay. it's you know, if, if unemployment's at record low, people are going to you know people are going to have that confidence to run down their savings rate and increase their debt. Uh, you know, the delta here is that once that unemployment rate starts to rise, it's not just the people who are unemployed; it's it's the people who know people who are unemployed. It starts to change, have knock-on effects in in terms of attitude. So, yeah, it's it's fine as long as unemployment carries on falling. But if one does believe that, you know, that part of the solution to bringing inflation down. Um, it's going to involve some kind of softening of the labour market, then I think these savings ratios, you know, these low savings ratios could become quite problematic. A little bit of a shameless plug. I think consumer confidence is really going to matter, right? So oh, yeah. as long as consumers feel okay about their prospects for labour um, and income, then they probably will continue to spend, even if it means out of out of credit. Um, now, that's certainly a negative for the financial sector because we are starting to see charge-offs rise and delinquencies rise. Um, will that cause like a big, you know, implosion in 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 household finances, like we saw during the Great Financial Crisis? No, I don't think so. But I do think that um, you know we really need to keep a close eye on what consumers are feeling, and then seeing that being borne out in the data. Okay, um, we don't have any more questions. So at this time, I want to thank all of our panelists and turn it back over to Caitlin. Thanks so much. A special thank you to Dana, Yelena, Brent, and David for their analysis in the report and on today's call. More information on NAEP surveys can be found at naep.com surveys. We'd like to also take this time to briefly plug our 39th annual NAEB Economic Policy Conference, March 28th through 30th in Washington, D.C. Arranged around the theme, Orienting Policy for a Polarized World, the conference will assess the challenges facing global policy and business leaders as they navigate their countries and their companies through uncertain economic times, marked by geopolitical instability and mounting price pressures, and enduring tests such as climate change, fiscal imbalances, and income inequality. The program features familiar names in the economics world, such as Philip Zweigel, Richard Clarida, Janet Yellen, Michael Barr, Susan Collins, and many more. For more information and to register, visit nave.com slash PC 2023.